Since the beginning of the year here at Clay Church, we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew. We started at the beginning, at the beginning of the year, seeking essentially what does it mean to accept an invitation of Jesus to follow, and, and then hearing this invitation to change the world together. And then the beginning of this month, last week, we started to ask the question, so what's next? And as we asked that question, we realized that perfect place to go in the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what happens next. Jesus takes his followers who had to have that question about what it meant to be a follower, and he, he takes them up on a hill, and he, he begins to teach in what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last week, we covered the Beatitudes, a little different than the comic on the screen. They were blessings, right? They were blessings given to the followers of Jesus. It, it was like, if you live in the way of Jesus, these are the blessings that await the people of God. These are the blessings that await you as you, as you build this kingdom that I'm going to teach you about. You might remember last week, Jesus, we, we said that Jesus began his teaching not with a set of rules to follow, but with an invitation to live in a way of blessing, right? A way of humility, of of lamenting and mourning what's broken in the world, of, of seeking right relationship with each other and with God, of seeking peace and, and seeking God no matter what the, the world said. This is the way of blessing that Jesus introduces. But Jesus' teaching, it didn't end there. And so today we're scheduled to hear the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to say up front, this next portion, it, it has some challenging stuff. We are going to hear about anger and divorce, and we're going to hear about lust and adultery and, and swearing. In fact, even as I say all that, we're also going to hear about being light to the world. Anybody just want to stick to the light to the world part? Yeah, some hands are going up. So yeah, maybe, maybe we'll just do the light of the world part and just like, like I, I don't know. We'll see where the Spirit leads. Would you pray with me? God, Holy God, as we explore your word today, just, just open us to what you would have us here. Challenge us. Expand our, our view to what you would have us see and fill us. God, fill us with the love of Jesus. Show us the way of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are the light of the world. After the Beatitudes, that's what Jesus says next. You are the light of the world. And then he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. The picture on the screen right now is taken from Jordan. I think I've shared it before. It's taken from, from jo the Jordan side of the Dead Sea, looking out toward Jerusalem, and what you see in the background, the city on the hill that's lit up at night, and is Jerusalem. As Jesus gathered with his followers, they, they would have known Jerusalem. They would have known that the temple was there. They would have known that on the high holy days, the temple cauldrons would have been filled with flame on top of the hill, on top of the, on top of the city, on top of the temple, and that that glow would be seen for miles around. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's saying, you, my followers, will become what the temple is now to those who seek to know God's presence. 
for the people to know God, you will be a light to them. You must be a light to them. That sounds pretty good, right? Like, I want to be a light to the world. I'm a light to the world. Most of the time, sometimes, are we, do, do our lives add light to the world? Do they show light to the world? Because before we're sure that we're the light, before we're sure that we've got it all right, we might want to pause and realize that the Pharisees thought that they had it all right. The Pharisees thought that their interpretations of the law were perfect and they were living by those. And those who didn't follow their, their way were to be judged and condemned because their way was the right way. And Jesus, later, he's going to have some pretty harsh words for them. But right now, he's talking to his followers, right? And after, after telling them to be the light, he then begins to share some teaching about the law. And so if we want to live into the light of Jesus and be a light to the world, we too probably ought to hear these teachings of, of Jesus, challenging though they may be. And we're going to hear these words, and I, I'll just admit there was a part of me that said maybe Maybe I just like pull out a, a little portion of this because um, there's a lot here in this next passage. But the reality is Jesus didn't like put the word out there and be like, hey, pick and choose the ones you want to preach on or pick and choose the ones you want to hear. Jesus laid all of, this, all of this out, at least in Matthew's telling, all of this out in one sitting. So it's a lot, but, but let me just read this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going we're gonna to start in Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, or anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and judge may be, hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it would said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it was said long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody here perfect? Me neither. I think I've called people raka or fool like two or three times this week. Hasn't been good. Right? And this, anybody else? Has anybody ever called anyone a fool? Okay, making sure I'm not the only one. Right? The Bible says this puts us in danger of the fires of hell. We probably, like, right, for any of us, we ought to think about this. Like, what do we do with this, with this teaching? Should we be plucking out eyeballs and, and cutting off limbs? And let me, let me just start as we dig into this. Let me start with a piece of context and, a, and I think a theological truth that can sort of help us dig into what Jesus is, is saying in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. First, the context. We should realize, it tells us right in the, in the text, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's not talking to the world at large. He's talking to those who have said, we want to follow you, Jesus, and we want to learn your way. This is Jesus' audience. And he sets up, he says right at the beginning, I haven't come to get rid of the law, I've come to fulfill it. 
And what is the aim of the law? Well, God's law was, was given to Moses, who brought it down from the mountain to give to God's people. And the aim of the law was to allow God's people to experience the kingdom that God desires for them. That was the aim of the law. It was so that God's people could be a blessing to the nations, so that they could live in the kind of love and community that would, that would show who their God is to other, to other peoples around them. The law was not given to separate people from God. The law was not given to separate insiders from outsiders. It was given to to show how to become a people like God, of God's goodness and, and blessings, to create the kind of community that embodied God's glory. And Jesus says, right off the bat, I have come to fulfill that purpose. Which then leads us to the theological truth. Right? We cannot earn our way into heaven. You cannot earn your way into heaven. No amount of good works or pursuing perfection will earn a heavenly ticket. Jesus is later going to assure his, his followers like that the way to life eternal is to believe in him, to accept the grace and the love that, that he offers, to follow in his way, to give one's life to follow him. That he will say, is the way to salvation, not perfectly following some code. We can't earn our way into heaven with good works. This means that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is not offering a prescription for salvation. This teaching does not mean that if you are divorced, you're not going to get to experience the kingdom of heaven. This teaching does not mean that any mistake you make damns you for eternity in, in hell. As a pastor, too often I hear stories of people who are either, thanks be to God, coming back to the church or who don't want to have anything to do with the church because they've been hurt and felt like they were judged as going to hell. People who've, who've said, right, I got a divorce and the church treated me as though there was, like I was a plague, that there was something wrong with me. I wasn't welcome there anymore. Or I had a child out of wedlock and I just felt utterly judged by the people of the church for the decisions that I had made. People who have felt like I didn't live up to their checklist and so I didn't have a, a place or a space in that community. Too often, I think the Bible has been presented as a checklist of things that we, like, like it's like, I haven't done that and I haven't done that and I haven't done that, so I get to go to heaven. And the damage that has inflicted on people is painful to see and I just want to scream, no, no. Like, that's just, it's wrong. That's not what Jesus was talking about when he taught. And starting here with the Sermon on the Mount, we who, who have sins that we're all wrestling with, right, we're offered to just see a better way. 
The Sermon on the Mount is not a prescription for salvation. It is an invitation to embody the kingdom of heaven together. To admit that we all come to this place with sins in our lives and we're all seeking to find that way together. With that context and that theological truth, it would be fantastic now to pull apart everything that we just heard from Jesus today, like step by step. Um, it'll take, anybody have seven hours? I think I can get through it all in seven hours. Anybody, seven hours? No, no hands up. Some of you have like Super Bowl plans, or I think there's a Notre Dame women's basketball game today. There's all kinds of things happening. So, so in your life guide, there are scriptures today, and they will walk you step by step with a question for each of, of these teachings of Jesus. I just, I hope you'll, you'll take those with you. You can also, if you sign up for our app and, and turn on notifications, you can get those updates daily as, uh, as well. Today, though, I just want to unpack a couple of these with this context so that when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can kind of use this as a, as a model for your own learning, for your own reading. Seek what Jesus is saying to you. So uh, let's start with, with anger. Anybody here ever get angry? Hands up if you get angry. Okay, good. Um, anybody whose hand is not up, if you'd come up right after worship, I'd like uh, to talk to you about like, ways we could teach everybody not to, not to get angry. Um, anyone ever here call somebody else a name? Okay, yep, good. All right. It's really good that you put your hands up there when I did. Any of us who get angry or have sometimes called somebody a name, we should hear this teaching of Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, the law said you're not supposed to murder somebody. And most people were probably saying, yeah, I haven't murdered anybody. I've been this close, but I haven't murdered anybody. Right? Very few people go that far. And that's what the law of Moses literally said. Jesus says to his followers, the point of the law isn't, isn't just to keep from committing murder. It's to examine every part of your life and ask the question, is this bringing life or is what I am doing is the way I'm reacting, bringing destruction and death to the world around me? Right? When we, when we harbor anger and let it build, when we, when we take our anger out into the world and spread it and tell others about how angry we are, instead of dealing with the, the issue with the, person, with the person we might be upset with, we bring death to relationships, and we bring death into community, and we bring hurt, and we bring pain. Right? The question isn't whether you're going to get angry. Anger is a human response to, to stressfulness. The question is what we do with our anger. That's where we're subject to, to judgment. The question is what we'll do. Will you let your anger destroy Will you walk away and, and give up on a relationship without even trying because you're so angry? Because when, when you do, quite often, 
more often than not, the wake of destruction is, is more than just you and the other person involved. And we probably should pause a moment and think about this, uh, calling someone a fool and, and the danger of the, of the fires of hell. Um, the fires of hell, the word used for hell here is, is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual place. It's a valley outside of Jerusalem. And it's mentioned um, in both the Old and the New Testaments. And what we know of Gehenna, there, there's some scholars who have, who have studied and, and they, some believe that they actually burned the trash in the time of Jesus um, in, the, in this valley of Gehenna. And some other scholars have begun to argue with that. But I think what's even more important to understanding what Jesus is saying here is knowing what the Old Testament says about Gehenna, about this valley, is it is the place where the kings, when they turned away from God, they took children and sacrificed them to other gods. Jesus is saying, if you walk down this path of anger, you're walking down a path that led others to this place of being willing to sacrifice their children to other gods. That's where this path leads. He's introducing them to a different path. Will you show the world? Will you show the community around you that you live in the way of the God of grace, forgiveness, and love, a God who has the, the power to overcome differences, a God who has the power to, to reconcile even the most broken of relationships. Will you show people, will you show people that God? Will you embody the way of Jesus? The next time you feel really angry, maybe, maybe you can just pause for a moment and ask, is my response going to show the world destruction and lead to the death of relationship or, or hope? Or is my response going to show people that I'm part of a community that bring, believes in the kind of love that, that can move past the anger to grace and hope and reconciliation and goodness Will my response show the love of God? We're going to look at one more teaching this morning. Another one that is, has been a struggle over time, inside and outside of the church. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 31 to 32, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in the time of Jesus, there was an ongoing debate between leading rabbis of the time about the grounds for divorce and what should be the, the grounds for divorce. And we know from, from other documents on those debates that there were those in the, in the Jewish community, Jewish men who, were, who said you could just divorce a woman. W women were seen as property. You can divorce a woman for any reason that you wanted. You just had to get the certificate done. It didn't matter that you had a good reason. In fact, there, there's one document that shows that, that there was a rabbi who was uh, saying it was okay um, as long as you had something. So even if your wife burned the bread, you could divorce her. This is the world that Jesus is speaking into, right? And any divorced woman at the time, it's a patriarchal society. So if a, if a woman was, was divorced, 
and moved out of the house, unless her family would take her back, there wasn't anywhere for her to go. There wasn't any means of, of supporting herself. Likely would live on the outskirts of town as a, as a beggar, a difficult life. The law, it provides a way for divorce, the certificate of divorce. Jesus acknowledges that, but then, then he says something else. He says, essentially, the intent of God's law is not simply to make divorce another tool of men to take advantage of women. In fact, if we put together this together with what Jesus says about lustfulness, it's all about not making women simply objects or objectifying women. It's about relationships and building a community where relationships matter. The intent of God's love is whole, committed, loving, caring, mutually respectful relationships. And then we should notice what Jesus says. This gets misinterpreted a lot. He doesn't say that the woman is guilty of divorce. He says, or of, of adultery after a divorce. He says that the man who divorces her, think man who divorces her for no good reason, is then guilty of her adultery. Right? The man who divorced her is responsible for both her actions and anything that happens in her sphere of life after that. This isn't casting judgment on those who get a divorce today because of abuse. This isn't casting judgment on those who get divorces because they've tried and tried and, and it's healthier for their children and their family to get a divorce because of irreconcilable differences. Jesus doesn't stand in judgment of women who divorce and remarry. Jesus calls people, particularly men, to care for their spouse, to honor their vows, to remain, to remain committed and to consider how breaking those vows, being dishonest, using divorce for selfish reasons, spreads pain and hurt beyond any one individual. Right? This, again, it isn't about personal salvation or individual judgment. This is about the kind of holistic and loving and real relationships that will model, that will model to the world, the, the love of God. Will we be kingdom builders in all we do and how we handle God's law? Will we be kingdom builders? This is Jesus' question at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. This part of the sermon is as challenging as it is. It's an invitation to reflect on our relationship with others in marriage, in, in how we treat one another and how we deal with conflict to examine all of those relationships and just ask ourselves, are these relationships that are building community or destroying community? Are these relationships that embody God's desire or tear down the kingdom of heaven on earth? Richard Rohr has this great book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called Jesus' Alternative Plan. And near the end, he writes this, he says, the motivation for all morality and religion is the imitation of God, who is love. When religion bases itself in fear, duty, honor, 
a need for law and order, a need for superior self-image or group cohesiveness. It is corrupt. Right? We won't experience the kingdom of God or the kingdom that God desires for us by holding the law over others and judging them by it. We won't experience this kingdom that we desire by, by forcing law on others or using it to say that we're better than others or creating a, a checklist. The way to experience the world is not to create a, a checklist of holiness that one has to meet to be a part of us. No, the way to create the kingdom of God is to imitate, is to imitate God, to live in the way of Jesus I couldn't stop thinking this week about Les Mis, maybe because one of the songs popped into my Spotify list three weeks ago, and it's, it's one of my favorite musicals, so I keep bursting into song in my car. Um, but, but maybe more so because, because God had this image for us to, to think about as we think about the Sermon on the Mount today. Some of you know the book, some of you know the movie, some of you may know though the musical, but even if you don't know, it's, it's the story of this guy named Jean Valjean. And Javajan has been released from prison. He was in prison simply because he stole bread to try and, uh, to try and feed his family. But he's been released from prison, but he can't find a job. And uh, um, he can't even find a place to stay because he has this convict badge that he has to, to wear. He's marked. And so finally, he's taken in by this bishop. And in this just place of desperation, he leaves the bishop's house in the middle of the night. And he packs up all the silver and he takes it with him. Well, as it turns out, as he's moving away, I guess he looks suspicious and the authorities grab him and, uh, and they, they take him back to the bishop's house. And they say, you know, we've caught this man and he says that you gave him this silver. Is that true? And they're ready for the bishop to tell the truth and for, for Jean Valjean to have to confess to what he did. And the bishop says, yeah, I, I gave him the silver and, and you forgot these two candlesticks and he gives him two silver candlesticks as well. And then he says this, the bishop says this to Jean Valjean. He says, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. It's your soul. I give to God. As the story goes on, Jean Valjean wrestles with what it means to be a good man. And he doesn't get it right all the time. He makes some mistakes along the way. But, but he just wants to live into this amazing and abundant grace that has been shown to him. And then it's a kind of parallel story of Jaber, who is the, represents the authorities and, and wants to... to enact the letter of the law, and it's, it's Jean Valjean's wrestling and Jaber's wrestling with, with this difference of legalism and grace between the aim of the law and the, and the reality that, that those who use the law for personal gain or to defend systems of injustice cause just more pain with it. And whether you've seen it or haven't, I'll let you see how it ends. 
right? God's law, it matters. The law, it does make a difference. It is a way, it does show us a, a way of living, but not as a checklist for personal salvation, right? It, it shows us the way to live when we've experienced that grace and, and we want others to see it and know it and experience it. Then, then following the law for us shows us the, shows us the way to embody that love to others. As followers of the law, we don't just follow the law of God, we embody God's desire for God's people. Let me say that one more time. As followers of Jesus, we don't just follow God's law like a checklist, we embody God's desire for God's people. You see, the law of God, it doesn't get replaced by Jesus. It gets fulfilled by Jesus, embodied in the very way that Jesus lived and taught. And then, because Jesus shares that teaching and the spirit with us, it becomes embodied in us. And I don't know about you, but I find that like amazing and incredible and terribly daunting and incredibly freeing and scary all at the same time. Our lives are meant to embody God's kingdom. Do our lives embody God to people? It's as though Jesus says to all of us gathered as the church, wherever we are, let your life speak of me. Let your life speak of my law, of my way, of my grace and my love. May our lives speak to the love and grace that Jesus offers. May, may we give our very souls to God and seek to be imitators of Jesus. And may the law of God, the desire of God for loving community to be a light to the world, May God's desire for all people to be embraced. May that be embodied through us. Amen. Amen.